living in a time of great confusion. The struggle still goes on for souls of men. Our freedoms are in peril of destruction. But we know with Jesus Christ we will win. Stand for the right with all your mind. Don't give in to the enemy's demand. Hold to God's hand and make us fair. It is righteousness that exalts any nation, but sin is a reproach to any land. The grace of God is the only explanation for the blessings we have seen from His hands. that the gentleman singing the solo from our church is also the author of the song. Isn't that significant? Praise the Lord. It's a wonderful song. God bless you, Jim. Let's all stand together. I want you to stand up. Stand up. Now I want you to put your right hand up way up over your head. Way up over your head. All right, shake it there a little bit. Stretch it out. Now put it, bring it right down in front of you. Now turn to somebody and grab their hand and say, how you doing? Good to see you. Just uh, fellowship there for just a moment. 
Stretch a little bit. Good. When you're all shook up there, have a seat. Thank you so much. I did fail to say what I wanted to say, what I feel is obvious, but I want to be courteous. Secretary of State Warner is coming from a different event. He was coming somewhere where he had to be dressed up. I meant to clarify that. But you look good, buddy. I want to tell you. You clean up nice. And, uh, all right. Well, this has been so good. We need, I'm talking about an American we, conservatives and Christians, we need to get David Barton known across the country and this material available to people in a public way. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how it all is going to work, but I know it's needful. I know it's needful. And I'm ready to hear some more, right? I know you are too. Brother Barton, come back, and we're so thankful that you're here, and uh, God bless you. I want to jump forward a couple of centuries and pick up uh, at the American founding with the same kind of theme. Uh, in doing that, I want to go to George Washington. His farewell address is considered the most significant political speech ever given by any U.S. president. It used to be that in our public schools in America up through 1820 or so, um, students, and, and they only went to school eight years back then. Once you're eight, when, when you went through eighth grade, you're 13, come on, buddy, get a job or go to college, one or the other, you're 13, grow up. And so that was the mentality they had. 13 was about as far as you went in school, eighth grade, but at that point, your first eight years of school, every year you took a written exam on George Washington's farewell address. We had to know it that well. So going with George Washington, let's see if we, yeah, there we go, George. His farewell address, and this is the handwritten copy of it, this is what he said. He said, in talking about political prosperity, little comment here, I think we can agree there's not much political prosperity right now. Uh, polarization, weaponization, let's cancel the other side. Everybody's, it's not prosperous. Political prosperity, but he said of all the habits and dispositions that lead to political prosperity, of everything that makes your politics work well, he said religion and morality are indispensable supports. If you want your politics to work, you don't separate religion and morality from it. And yet, oh, no, Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, really. Christians get out, religion and morality gets out. How does that work for politics? It's not working real well right now. And I tell you, Brother Pinson, what he went through in passing RIFRA yeah. and Matt, um, yes. there is probably not a bill in America that will get you more attacked than trying to pass RIFRA. Because what it does, RIFRA, there was a court decision in 1980, 1993, RIFRA was passed in the federal Congress, and it was to protect First Amendment symbol. That's all it was. It was just to protect what the founding fathers gave us with religious liberty in the First Amendment. If you try to do that at a state level today, man, that is the biggest hate law that's ever been passed, the biggest gender. I mean, they just consider it mega hate. If you try to pass something that protects religious liberty, as Brother Pinson did, you will get attacked for that. And we have watched in state after state for the last 10 years, the states try to get it done and could not get it done. It, it is a hard law to pass. Some states have it. They got it passed back 15, 20 years ago. It's been really hard in the last 10 years. So 
Thank you, Matt. Thanks for all the support there. Pastor Pinson, thanks for doing that. So that's the kind of stuff that Washington, it was just no brainer back then. Come on, guys. If you want your politics to work well, you don't separate religion from morality. He even went so far as to say, in vain would that man claim to attribute patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. He said, anyone who tries to take religion and morality out of politics, I won't let them call themselves a patriot. Now, there's somebody who knew a patriot. He had him at Valley Forge. He had him for eight years in the war. He knew a patriot when he saw a patriot. He said, I'm just telling you, anybody who tries to secularize the public square is not a patriot, and I won't let them call themselves that. Now, this is essentially, you know, we're looking at 170 years after the pilgrims, and this is still the mentality we had in America concerning American politics. And somehow, our generation now, Christians shouldn't be involved in that. Oh, the secular stuff. We don't do secular stuff. Fortunately, that's not what they believed back then. Otherwise, we'd be like every other nation in Europe. Um, we've only had one constitution 236 years. France has had 15 in the same period of time. Uh, we have the longest ongoing constitution in the world because we have a different foundation. What's the problem is, uh, Psalms 11.3, the foundations be destroyed with the righteous do. So we've got a biblical foundation in that constitution. If we try to put that constitution on a secular foundation, it's not going to work. It wasn't built that way. So going back, it's important that we have religion and morality, but this is where we're having trouble with America right now. I do a lot of, uh, we, we work with a lot of pollsters, George Barn and other national pollsters, and there's some interesting measurements on where Christians are and where America is. Let me take you, for example, to what's called the American Bible Society. Oh, by the way, I'll just go past that. But the American Bible Society, this was started first in 1816 by founding fathers. The American Bible Society, considered the largest Bible society in the world today, gives out 250 million Bibles a year. But it was started in 1816 by signers of the Constitution. It was started by Supreme Court justices, by vice presidents. It was started by political folks because they knew how important the Bible was. That in itself is a pretty interesting commentary. The first Bible Society ever started in America is by Benjamin Rush. We'll talk about him in a minute. Benjamin Rush signed the Declaration, ratified the Constitution. John Adams said he's one of the three most significant founding fathers. He started the first Bible Society in 1809, and by 1816 we had 121 Bible Societies in America. We had a Bible Society for everybody and for everything. Everybody needed to know the Bible, and that's when the National American Bible Society came out. So. What happens to the American, American Bible Society is every year they do the State of the Bible Report. And it says, what do we know about Bible reading in America? So for 2022, if you look on the chart on the right, you see a pretty strong dip. What happened was in 2022, 20, in that one year, 25 million Americans stopped reading the Bible. Now, it was already headed down, but that year it just plummeted. So 25 million in one year. And if Americans are not going to read the Bible, we're not going to have religion, morality, and politics, and it's not going to work well. That's what we've been warned about from the very beginning. So it dropped that year. But then if you look in the next year, when the, came out, the report came out for the next year, what you find is that year dropped another 3 million. So what we've had in the last two years, we've lost 28 million Americans who no longer even crack the word. They don't open that Bible at all. So the biggest problem America's got right now is right here just reading it. We just don't read it anymore. We don't read it in schools. And by the way, Benjamin Rush, and we'll talk about it more later, but he said the Bible, when not read in schools, is seldom read in any subsequent period of life. When we pulled the Bible out of schools in 1963, Bible reading's been plummeting ever since then. Interesting. That was not just a happenstance kind of decision. That's something that shifted the America. We're to, the people right now are at a height of biblical literacy we've never seen before. So what happens is right now only 6% of Christians have a biblical worldview. Only 6% of Christians can take headlines in the newspaper and put a Bible verse beside that, like the pilgrims did. You want something on economics, you want something on criminal justice, you want something on immigration, you want whatever the issue is, Bible's got it. 
There's only one in 16 Americans that can actually apply the Bible to daily living now, and only 9% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. Now, that's Christians. That's those who profess the name of Christ, only 9%. Jesus told us we can't live by bread alone. It takes every word that proceeds out of God's mouth. He told us to pray for daily bread. We ought to be in his word every day at a minimum. And again, the pilgrims were two to three to four hours a day. That was, that was what they did. So that's, that's the situation we've got going right now. Now, as a result of that, what we find is most folks don't know any Bible verses for this. And by the way, what Bible verse would you choose for minimum wage? Or what would you choose for progressive taxes? What would you choose? And I, I can give you Bible verses in every one of these. Every one of us should be able to see pilgrims. Pilgrims knew that. They, they were in God's word. And any one of them could have been the governor. Any one of them could have been the pastor. That was what was cool about those people is they knew God's word. Elections every year. Anybody could step up. So Benjamin Rush, as the guy I mentioned earlier, he says, Bible contains more knowledge necessary to manage its present state than any other book in the world. Now, he, again, is signer of the deck. He's one of the three most notable founding fathers. We don't know him today, but that's what John Adams said about him back then. And I want to give you just one example of how practical the Bible was. Now, I can show you dozens of these stories from American history, but I want to, I want to take one. The one deals with a guy named Matthew Maury. Matthew Maury grew up in Ohio. He was uh, a man that he loved to see. He joined the Navy and went to sea very young, became a cabin boy. Then he became a sailor, then he became an officer, then he became a ship's captain, then he actually owned ships. And one day he was ashore, and as he was ashore one day, he had a stagecoach accident, and it ended up, it ended up ending his naval career because it crushed his leg, it grew back, but it didn't grow back straight. So we're going to talk about Matthew Maury, but that's a little background on him. But if you don't know him, he has, he's been given several titles historically. One is he's called the father of oceanography. Now, this guy was running the Naval Observatory, which is what does all the, the currents and, and stuff back then. And he's the guy who figured out that there were jet streams in the ocean. Now, nobody knew that back then. I want you to think about the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. How many satellites do we have in the sky back then? Nothing. What's our technology? It's really poor. And yet he was able to find and chart all the fast places in the water. And if you doubt that there are jet streams in the ocean, just watch Finding Nemo. It's really easy. I mean, you'll see. What happened was he came on to the idea that there were places faster in the water. How did he do that? Because when he was home sick one day, he was in bed sick, and he asked the family to read the Bible out loud to him while he's in bed sick. Probably not a whole lot of people do that now. You're in bed sick, somebody read the Bible to me. So his family read the Bible, and what jumped out to him was something in Psalm 8. Psalm 8, particularly verse 8, Matthew, Mari, and they were reading out loud to him, Psalm 8, and the scripture says, Thou madest man to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, and the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. He said, read that again. Read it again. Stop. Read that again. Read it again. Read it again. We read it four times. Read it again. What jumped out to him was whatever passes through the paths of the sea. He wrote, he said, if God said there are paths in the sea, then there are paths in the sea, and I'm going to find them. So what he did at the Naval Observatory was he took 46,000 ship logbooks. Now, ship logbook is fairly thick. It's about an inch thick. It has 150 pages. And about three times a day, you take readings as you're going across the ocean. You get your astrolabe out, and you get everything out, and you say, all right, we're at this longitude, this latitude. Here's where we were five hours ago. We've now made this much progress. 
And so he took all of those 46,000 ship's logs with thousands of entries, and he plotted it out by hand, no computer, by hand on a big map. And when he did, he said, you know, every ship that gets over here goes faster than all the ships that are over here. If we can move these ships over a mile and a half, they'll go faster than all these. And so when he came out with his charts, what it did was if you were in Boston and wanted to sail to San Francisco, you have to go down around South America and come back up on the other side. And it took six months. So if you want to go transcontinental in America back then in the 1830s and 40s, you look at it six months. When he came out with his maps, it cut it down to three months. That's still a long time, but it's not six months, which means all the ships can get twice as many trips in, which means they can bring twice as much produce back, which means they can have twice as much profit. When prosperity goes up, transportation goes up, all these nations can now do things they've never been able to do before, and that's because of what he did. Now, that wasn't the only Bible verse that had an impact on him. He also read Ecclesiastes 1, 6, it says, the wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls back continually and comes again on its circuit. The wind has a circuit? Yeah. Well, he finds out the wind goes one way up in one hemisphere and it goes another way down in another hemisphere. And I'm, I'm, we're still back in the 1800s with no technology except he found this in the Bible. And so what happened as a result of that, he's called the father of naval meteorology because for the first time in history, we were able to start predicting the weather. He said, you see the way those clouds are going? You do not want to sell this week. Wait till next week. That's a really... He's predicting... We'd never had weather prediction of any kind until he did it. Now, significant, this is a really famous American, except what happens now, we don't know who he is. And he does have statues to him. Uh, Byron, he's a guy out of Virginia. He's got statues in Virginia. And when you look at the statues he's got, it's interesting that by every one of the statues, his feet is the Bible. That's where he got his ideas. And of course, his statues were torn down with all the protests, because we can't have guys like that. So. But again, it goes back to how practical the Bible is in every single aspect. And I could take you through medicine. I could take you through anything you want and show you how the Bible has had that impact. So the biblical literacy that America suffers right now has affected the way we see God's institutions. Um, it, you've already heard tonight three institutions. Pastor Bartlett said it. Three institutions. We know the first is that of the family. Family, Genesis 1, 2, 3. You got man. God made man. God made woman. They were together, had children. God said, that's good. That's his institution and family. Now, it's interesting. That institution of family, the more biblical you are, the more you understand the institution of family. The more secular you are, the less you understand that. That's, right. uh, that's why the institution of family, the Bible says four times, and God made them male and female, male and female made he them. We didn't have any trouble with the genders any 20 years ago, even 20 years ago. Even 20 years ago, we weren't as secular as we are now. And if, you, if you've missed it, in the last two months, they've been doing corporate trainings, and they're now teaching corporations that there are 150 different identified genders in America. 150? You have lost your brain. Uh, by the way, in real life, I'm a cowboy from Texas. I live out on a ranch. We've got the horses. We've got the cattle, got the pickups, got the boots, got everything that goes with it. And you may know nothing at all about ranching, but do you know what? It doesn't matter. I can take any one of you to my ranch. I can put any one of you behind my cattle herd, and every one of you can accurately tell me the gender of every critter that I've got. Yeah. It's just not a hard thing, and there's not 150 genders. There's only two of them, and it's not hard to identify. We've lost our brains. The more secular we get, the less these institutions hold up. 
So that's God's institution family. The second institution is Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, when Noah, remember after Cain killed Abel, everything went downhill after that. Really bad and just rape, murder, pillage. That becomes the world. And God says, okay, let's wipe it out and start again. So puts Noah on the ark, sends a flood, earth is destroyed. Noah and his family get off the ark. And in Genesis 9, 6, God gives a command to Noah. It says, Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man will his, by man will his blood be shed. That's capital punishment. That's a civil law. And Hebrew scholars say, oh, that's the first of the, what are called the Noahide laws in, in, Hebrew, in Hebrew tradition. Noahide laws. God gave Noah seven civil laws. It started with capital punishment, but he gave seven laws. Here's how we're going to run society now. We're not going to have another one of these runaway crime epidemics like we've had. Here's seven civil laws. So those seven civil laws, that comes from God. That, that's God's institution, his government. He, he originated that, Genesis 9. So past that, we also have the church. But the church didn't exist back in the Old Testament, true. But you have a type and shadow. When you get in Genesis and in Exodus particularly, God says, look, I want my people in a congregation. I want the congregation coming to the temple. I want them worshiping together. That's a type and shadow of the church. That's early type and shadow. So even though the church is not back there, we've got the type and shadow. Those are God's three institutions. No question about that. Now, what happens is today, most Christians are more comfortable knowing something about family and about church than they are about government. That, that's, that's an institution we don't know that much about today. But this is a new problem. It's not an old problem. Uh, if I were to take you back to a guy named John Locke, John Locke did a book called The Two Treatises of Government. That is a significant book in American history. As a matter of fact, when we did the Declaration of Independence, Richard Henry Lee out of Virginia, Richard Henry Lee who he made the motion that we should separate from Great Britain, do the declaration. So he made that motion, and interestingly, when the declaration's written, he signed it, and he said, quote, we copied the declaration out of Locke's two treatises of government. Well, that's significant. That's what we used to write the declaration? Yep. Interesting. That little book, still available today, you can go download it online. It's less than an inch thick. It's less than 400 pages long. It references the Bible over 1,500 times to show the proper operation of civil government. Now, try to get Christians to name more than eight or ten verses that deal with government. That one book has more than 1,500 by itself. See, we've been told that government's secular. It's not Christians don't get involved. God got involved in it. He has a lot of stuff to say about it. I mean, it's real simple. So we need to love what God loves and be involved where he's, where he's involved. And so when you go back to these three institutions, we, we've got to be in the midst of all of those. Government is the one that we've knocked out. And, and, and you know, even as Tom, Pastor Tom was talking about earlier, registering to vote. To vote in America, there's three requirements. Two are constitutional, one statutory. The two requirements constitutionally is, number one, you have to be 18 years old. Number two, you have to be a legal citizen. 100% of people who are 18 years old and legal citizens can be voters. This is where the third requirement comes in, and that is you have to register to vote. That statutory requirement, we want to make sure you don't vote 10 times or somebody doesn't vote 10 times in your name. We want you to register to vote. So this is where it starts falling apart. Only 65.3% of Americans are registered to vote, American adults. I'm, I'm not talking kids. I'm talking 18 and above. Only 65.3% of those folks are registered. That's, that's about 90 million Americans that are adults that can vote that refuse to do so. I don't care what happens to the nation. I'm not going to be part of it. Now, that doesn't, that, that's not the 80 million that, that Tom talked about and that Byron talked about where we've only got half of the 80 million evangelicals voting. 
We're talking 90 million adults that don't vote. Now, there's two types of elections in America. The, the one that we're most familiar with is presidential election. This is where we have the biggest turnouts. In the last 10 presidential elections, the average voter turnout is 54% of registered voters. Now, that's not 54% of adults. That's 54% of 65.3%. It means only 36% of adults vote for president, and it takes half of that to win. Then we're having the elections that we had last year. Those are called the off-year elections. This is where we choose governors and U.S. congressmen and, and senators and, and state legislators, et cetera. And in the last 21 off-year elections, the average voter turnout is 38%. But that's not 38% of adults, it's 38% of registered voters. That's 38% of 65.3%, which means 26% of adults vote for governor and for congressmen, for senators, and it takes only half of that to win. So what you're looking at, in the last 10 presidential elections, one out of five Americans has chosen the president. Four out of five did not choose the president. When you look at governors and you look at senators and congressmen, it's one out of eight that chooses our governors and senators and congressmen. Seven out of eight don't choose the leaders we have right now. That's at the state and the national level. Then when you go to the local level, it drops down to only about 6% voter turnout. Now, that's 6% of registered voters, which is 6% 65%, which is only 4% turnout. But it takes half of that to win, so you're talking about 2%. So let me put this in context. I want to take the city of Los Angeles for a moment. The city of Los Angeles is big, second, biggest, second largest city in the nation. The city of Los Angeles has a population that is greater than the population of 23 separate states. city of Los Angeles is a whole lot bigger than West Virginia whole lot bigger, all by itself. It's bigger than 23 states. So if you're mayor of Los Angeles, that's not being a governor in 23 states. Eric Garcetti just retired as mayor of Los Angeles, and boy, did he hit the church. When COVID hit, everybody can stay open except the church. They're the ones that are the really dangerous ones, that we can't have them up. Eric Garcetti brags about the fact he was elected mayor of Los Angeles with 2.9% of the vote. 2.9%. I know enough churches in Los Angeles, they could have anybody they want to for mayor. They didn't. There's, there's plenty enough churches. There's enough churches in California to have anybody they want to for governor. It's easy, but not when you have turnout at 2 to 4%, 2.9%. If I take you to my own state of Texas, the fourth largest city in the nation is Houston. Houston, the population of Houston is larger than the population of 20 separate states. And Houston elected Anise Parker mayor. She's the first lesbian mayor of Houston. And boy, did she not like pastors. And so she quickly got a city law passed that said, if you say marriage between a man and a woman, that is a crime. And she then subpoenaed 16 different forms of communication from pastors and said, Pastor, I want to see all your text messages, see all your voicemails, I want to see all your sermon notes, I want to see all your televised and public. And if you've ever said marriage between a man and a woman, I have got you. That is a crime in Houston. She was elected with 3.3% of the vote. I know enough churches in Houston to have anybody they want. Houston's still part of the Bible Belt. It, it's not crazy. Well, it's crazy when they don't go vote and elect a leader like her. It's what makes it crazy. It's not that people are crazy. It's just that they didn't do anything, which maybe they are crazy if they're not going to do anything. You can stop stuff like this if we get involved. And so this is where it becomes significant. All these three institutions that God gave us, if we get involved with them, it makes a big difference. Now, when you look at the institutions, why don't we get involved? And I have heard from all sorts of Christians, theological reasons for why Christians shouldn't get involved. And a whole lot of those deal with what we would call eschatology, the study of the end times. 
I, it, it's the last days. Jesus is coming back. All this doesn't make, it's all prophesied. This is going to, all these reasons for why Christians shouldn't get involved, and they blame it on eschatology. Now, eschatology is studied in times. May I point out, I believe God's word is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. And in the writings, in Peter and in the epistles of Paul, both of them say they're living in the last days. So how long did the last days last? I don't know, but at least 2,000 years. You know, they, they go at least 2,000 years. So the last days thing, that doesn't hold up. I mean, that just doesn't work. So how do we know in the last days are what, what happened? So let me give you an example from American history, because American history, they were, as you saw, they're very Bible-centered, and they were very conscious of last days. As a matter of fact, there's a great example. In Connecticut Senate, back May the 19th, 1780, Connecticut Senate had a crisis. It was called the Day of Darkness. What happened was, in Connecticut on that day, the sun didn't come up. At least they didn't think it did. They had a black sky over them, and they could not see through it, and it was dark. Now, they didn't know there was a mega fire up in Canada. All the smoke had come down, and then a fog moved over it so the smoke couldn't get up. But they couldn't see the sun, and they believed the sun didn't come up that day. So they're at the legislature, and the sun is not up. What's happened? It's the day of judgment. This is the great and fearful day of the Lord. This is what's been prophesied. This, and so at that point in time, the Connecticut legislature says, all right, this is the day of the Lord, and they moved for adjournment. So they said, let's go home. There's nothing we can do. Let's just go home. At that point in time, there was a brilliant response given by a man named Abraham Davenport. He was a strong Christian. He knew the scriptures like they knew the scriptures, but he had a different response to this is the last days. This is, this is the day of judgment. This is what he said. He says, the day of judgment is either approaching or it's not. This is either it or it's not. Really smart, yeah, it either is or it isn't. He says, if it's not, then there's no cause for an adjournment. If it turns out this is not the day of judgment, why did we stop working? He says, if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, the candles may be brought. Nothing's going to stop me from doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Doesn't matter what prophecy I think is fulfilled. Nothing's going to keep me from doing it. And there's a famous painting in the Connecticut legislature where they brought candles to keep working through the day. They couldn't see. This is Governor Trumbull over here. He's a strong Christian. He was a theologian that was their governor. And this was their perspective. Is nothing's going to stop us from being involved and doing what we're supposed to do. You know, if Jesus comes back and we all get taken out of here, then I'll stop. But I'm going to stop until that happens. And so literally what you find in this as scripture in Luke 12, 43, this is what he quoted. He says, blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. If this is the day he's coming back, I want him to find me busy at what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't want him to find me sitting around waiting for him to come. I want him to find me busy. And that's what Andrew Davenport said. If this is the day of, of the Lord, if this is the day of judgment, I want to be found so doing when he returns. He's quoting right at that verse there. This is also what Jesus talks about in Luke 19, 13, where he says, occupy till I come. You stay after it till I get back and take you out of there. If I haven't taken you out of there, you're not done yet. And so the whole mentality of using any reason not to be involved is not acceptable to the Lord. Blessed are those that when I return, I find so doing. And that's what we've got. He's given us all three institutions. We're stewards over all three institutions. It's not optional from a biblical standpoint. So when you look at these three institutions, we've got to be involved in those three institutions. Close with a couple of thoughts. Dr. Matthias Burnett 
Matthias Burnett was a famous preacher in the American founding. And he included in his sermon the concept of accountability like I'm talking about now, but he also had it in a different way. Just let me show you what he said. He says, to God and posterity, you're accountable for your rights and your rulers. To posterity. How much has America slipped in the last generation? If, America, if God didn't come back for another 150 years, what is the next generation going to have to say about us? What did we give them? To God and posterity. We act like it's going to end soon. We don't know that. And what are we going to pass on? What are we giving our kids in the way of schools and education and government and politics? And it's not going to be a good thing we passed on. And that was what they were cognizant of. Not only do we answer to God, we answer to the next generation. They said, let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights and prostrating those institutions which your fathers delivered to you. It's all a concept of stewardship. Occupy till I come. I've given you something. You take care of it till I get back. And this is literally why we have to be involved in the civil arena. America would not exist if Christians had not been involved in the civil arena. We've let the people who hate Christians tell us we shouldn't be involved. How's that worked out for them? That's made it really easy for them. Right. See, we've just handed it over. We can't do that. We have to get involved. So Pastor Tom, again, he showed you that QR code. That's a great way to, to, to start getting involved. If you're not registered to vote, you've got to start there, but right. don't stop there. Oh, my goodness. That's only getting your toe in the water. You need to jump in all the way. You need to get a whole lot more wet than just your toe. There's a lot that you can do. So if this is new to you, uh, I'll point out that, that this, and by the way, this is back where we started from. He wants us to be kings and priests, operate in both arenas, and we need to get back in the king arena as well. We need to be able to operate on the government side. But if this is new to you, we do have a book outside that's called um, the, the American Story. It particularly has that chart that some of you asked about in break on the, the Plymouth, plant, the Plymouth Colony and the Jamestown Colony. That's all in there, and that's all documented from history. We have those 160,000 documents that we point back to. So get involved. Please get involved. Byron, back to you, sir. Amen. I truly do believe the Bible is the only book that can straighten a country out. Um, I need to ask you a question. Did you read the Bible today? I'm glad to hear some people say yes and amen to that. I was in a meeting something like this uh, on a Wednesday night. It was uh, March the 15th, 2018. And in that meeting, a fellow named Johnny Pope preached, and he preached Sweet Hour of Prayer. That was a sermon title that night. And as he preached, I fell under great conviction. How many of us are really praying an hour a day? The pianist at that meeting was a fellow named David, a friend of mine, another David, David Chamberlain. And uh, Johnny Pope called on me. said, Brother Fox, come sing Sweet Hour of Prayer for us. So I got up there and I began to sing Sweet Hour of Prayer. But brother, I was the one under conviction. And I said to David Chamberlain as the meeting ended, I said, David, the next eight days, you text me in the morning and you ask me, have I had my hour with God? 
Since that day until now, I've read through the Bible 52 times. This is the only book that can straighten a man out. And I don't get much out of it. I mean, I, I read it, but I'm, I'm just not, I'm not smart. I've not got, I got a lot of aptitude. But I'm going to tell you, God is great. I have people fuss at me, scream at me, threaten me. The Barton one fellow came and said, separation of church and state, separation. I said, stop. I said, you're not intimidating me. And I believe in separation of church and state. He said, you do? I said, of course I do. I don't think the state has any business telling the church what we can and cannot preach. And he was stunned, and he didn't even know how to respond. But in that situation, I had a lot of security in me. And somebody said, how do you have so much security with a guy like that screaming at you? I said, it's because I read two hours of the Bible this morning. This Bible right here puts security in you. This is the sure foundation now, who is the hero of the Bible? Well, that's Jesus Christ, brother. Who's the villain in the Bible? Well, that's the devil. And I saw what you had up here about the Satan trying to keep us from reading the Scriptures. I think every boy and girl who has a mom or dad ought to see mom and dad reading the Bible. I think the Bible needs to be read right there inside of the home. Inside the school, inside the church. It's a shame the truth has fallen in the church. My soul. We've got to let God straighten us out. My challenge to you tonight is to get in this Bible. I mean, actually read it. Actually study it. And everything you find in there, say, yes, sir, Lord, will comply. Will co. Now, that'll change it. There's a 25-word verse in the Bible that's the most famous. It's in that book of John, Brother David, that those little children in Massachusetts, <laughs> northern Virginia, that those little second graders memorized the book of John. John chapter 3 and verse 16. If you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It would bother me if somebody here tonight had rejected Christ. You see, you either accept Christ. If you're listening, say amen. amen. You either accept Christ or you reject Christ. You can't sit on the fence about Jesus. There's, you can't be neutral about Jesus. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The world knows almost nothing about giving. But God gave His Son. That whosoever, anybody in West Virginia, politicians, you think every politician ought to be saved? I do. Saved, rescued. Saved is a Bible word. Rescued from their sin. Rescued from going to hell when you die. Rescued to get to go to heaven. Only God can do that. No statutory law. No statutory law can fix that for a man. No. But God made a way that whosoever believeth. Now you got to believe. If you don't believe, you're not saved. You're not going to heaven. What do you got to believe? You got to believe Jesus is God's son. You must believe he died on the cross. 
If you don't believe Jesus died on the cross, you're not saved. If you don't believe that they buried him, you're not saved. If you don't believe that he rose from the dead, you are not saved. You must believe the resurrection. By the way, God who spoke this whole universe into existence, you think it's a hardship for God to raise his son from the dead? If you believe that, if you believe it's a hardship for God, you don't understand God at all. No, Jesus died on that cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He took my sin. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. I hear people, Pastor Bartlett, I can hardly bring myself to say this in front of you folk. I hear people say, I wish you'd go to hell. They say that to each other. How can you say that? I've heard a few people say, well, I want to go to hell. When I hear that, I know one of two things. They're either lying or they don't know what hell is like. Nobody want to go to hell. Nobody in your right mind won't go to hell. That whosoever believeth in him, huh, believe in Jesus, should not perish, but have everlasting life. <laughs> One of these days, you're going to hear, Brother Fox is gone. He passed away. He's dead. He's dead. He died. You know what I'll be? I'll be safely home. I'm headed to heaven. Well, Brother Fox, why do you get to go to heaven? Because over 50 years ago, I was in a meeting something like this, and the gospel of Jesus Christ was presented, and I took Jesus as my Savior that night. It's on a Thursday night. This is a Friday night. But tonight's a wonderful night for folks to call upon the Lord. You know you can sing a song about Jesus and not be saved? You can write a book about Jesus and not be saved. I'm going to tell you something you can't do. You can't call on him to be saved and not get saved. Whosoever, this is what the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you done it? Would you bow your heads? If you have never called on the Lord to save you, you need to do that tonight. More than trying to rescue America from liberalism and Communism, more than that, is receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you've never done that, I want you to do it now. Jesus wants you to do it now. He wants you to be saved. He died for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves everybody right where they are. But he loves you too much to leave you where you are. He wants you to be saved. And then he wants you to be conformed to the image of Christ. Would you call on the Lord right now? The night I received Christ, as a boy, I didn't know how to pray. The man dealing with me said, well, just call on the Lord. I said, I don't know how to pray. He said, just talk to God. And I prayed something like this in a little boy's verbiage. I said, God, I know I'm wrong. And God, I know you're right. Would you please save me? And I'm going to tell you something. He did. And he'll save you. You can't pray it wrong when you want to be saved. Call on him now.
with heads bowed. Nobody looking but me and the Lord right now. Is there anyone tonight, just tonight, just tonight you call on the Lord to save you and you're happy about it? Would you let me know by just raising a hand? Is there somebody in this room who said, Brother Fox, tonight I call on the Lord to save me. I see that hand. Good. Who else? I understand. Yeah. Who else? Anybody else call on the Lord tonight? All right. Now all of us Christians. I'm about finished. Stay with me. How many of you Christians will make a commitment tonight that you're going to read the Bible more and you're going to try to read the Bible every single day the rest of your life? Would you raise a hand if you try to make that commitment that that's what you'll aspire to do, that you'll try? Now be careful. That's a big commitment. I see those hands. I'm telling you, it's changed my life. I read the Bible before. March of 2018, but somehow reading these mega doses, I challenge you in the next 30 or 40 days, read completely through the Bible. Read the words you can't say very well. Read it all and ask God to speak to you. How God speaks to people is through the Bible. Oh Lord, thank you for this remarkable night. Thank you for Pastor Bartlett putting this together. And Lord, all these wonderful people who came, thank you. Now Lord, I want us to be a righteous army for you. I don't want us to be apathetic and indifferent. I know that's not your will. It is not your will for us to not be involved. You designed us, Lord Almighty. You designed us to rise to challenges. Well, this seems to be the biggest challenge in my whole lifetime to try to win souls right now and to point folks to Christ now and to stand up for righteousness. Thank you that John Pinson stood up for righteousness with others surrounding him. Oh, Lord, may many more of us do likewise. May your hand be upon West Virginia. Lord, forgive us and send a great revival to our state. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Bartlett. Praise God. Well, we're about to get out of here. I'd like my pastor friends, if you are a pastor or assistant pastor on staff at a church, would you stand right now? Preachers, most of you I know, and I thank you so oh, yeah. much that you're here all over the room Look tonight. God bless you. Thank you, gentlemen. I love you. appreciate you. I appreciate the folks from the Wilderness Christian Camp, a wonderful ministry out of Jackson County here helping us tonight. Pastors, we must encourage our people to register and to vote. People of the Bible ought to express themselves at the ballot box. To whom much is given, much is required. There are, there are millions of Christians who cannot do what we're privileged to do. And you heard the embarrassing, shameful numbers tonight about how many are not participating. And it's not any better in our congregations, men. So we've got to challenge our people seize this beautiful opportunity. It's not guaranteed to us, but it's been extended to us by the grace of God. And I want to follow up on what Brother Barton said real quick, and then we're going to go. I can't let you get out of here without making sure you understand this. The chief election officer for the state of West Virginia is sitting right here. He'll back me up on this. West Virginia is in a unique political situation. And here's what's unique about it. 
our primary election in May is more critical for what we hold to and believe than the general. I don't have time to amplify that. He's nodding. He's saying that's right. These men live in the political world. The big decisions are going to be made in May. Because one party holds, the, holds all the authority up there. And I want to tell you, one party doesn't hold biblical values. Neither party holds biblical values. And there's a tiny, tiny minority led by men like these. There's a tiny minority in the state house that are truly Bible people. I know who they are. I was blessed to serve for a year and I stay in contact. It's a tiny minority and you can't tell who they are by the letter that follows their name. So in the primary, find out who's a Bible person. And that's who you vote for. Because frankly, one, one party is going to win, is going to sweep the thing in, in the fall election. That's just where we are in West Virginia. So I want to encourage you, don't put off voting in the primary. That's when we can find new blood. I think there's 10 or 12 open seats in the House. New opportunities to put true blue Bible believers in those seats. How's that going to happen? By evangelical people, by Christian people, by Bible people taking their Bible to the ballot box and voting. Thank you for being here tonight. Let's stand together. Dr. Barnett, would you make your way to the platform? I want to introduce you to my dad, the founding pastor of Maranatha Baptist Church. And uh, he's not a coal miner's daughter, but he's a coal miner's son. And uh, from Boone County, West Virginia. And he planted this church in 1969 and served here 39 years. It's been my privilege and joy to follow him as the senior pastor here. And we're thankful for all God's goodness on us, our church, our state. And Dad, love you. I want you to just lead us in prayers. We're dismissed. Bow in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you for this great evening, and I thank you for this, the spirit that's been in this place and the Holy Spirit and the spirit of unity. And we pray that you bless as we go from this place, give us safety and help us to get in the book, live what we read and what we believe. And we ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior, and for his sake. Amen.